So this talk is based on work I published with Leo Ferraro in 2013, 2016, 2018 in the following books, Scientific Study of Personal Wisdom, Hypnosis and Meditation, the Oxford Handbook of Spontaneous Thought. Now this is what I want to do. I want to discuss with you why intelligence is insufficient for rationality. And I'm going to make a strong case for that. And how rationality is about overcoming self-deception. Stanovich works is central here, uh, Keith Stanovich work, and this is going to be a long section, this first part, as this argument is central. Then I'm going to discuss three general strategies that are emerging as we attempt to build artificial general intelligence. There are more than three, but I only have time for three. I'm going to concentrate on three of the big ones. What I'm going to argue is that as you increase the use of these three strategies to make a system more generally intelligent, you also increase its tendencies to fall prey to self-deception. And rationality as something above and beyond intelligence is therefore needed to address this self-deception. Further, rationality is about acquiring different cognitive styles for different kinds of knowing. And that will lead into an argument that wisdom is about optimizing the relationship between these different cognitive styles and it is ultimately what is needed to overcome foolishness, which is systematic self-deception. Then we're going to discuss how wisdom is something we need to know from the inside. Obviously, I'm speaking metaphorically there, and I'll try to start what that means. And to exemplify, if we're going to create artificial wisdom. And then the main moral argument I'm drawing from this is artificial general intelligence without artificial wisdom is morally dangerous to both the machines we are making and to ourselves. Uh, therefore, there is a moral imperative upon us to cultivate wisdom if we are developing AGI. I don't mean this in the trivial sense that we should cultivate wisdom whenever we're <coughs> doing anything, because of course we should. I mean this in the specific case that if we want to make these machines, we get a specific moral imperative emerging out of that task. Okay, so consider the following problem. Okay, so Linda is 31 years old single outspoken, very bright. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. And which is more likely? Linda's a bank teller. Linda's a bank teller and active in the feminist movement. So when you give this kind of problem to people, people overwhelmingly choose B as more probable. But according, of course, according to formal probability, that's false because it's a conjunction, right? This is known as the conjunction fallacy. Now, what might be going on here? There's a lot of discussion about this, but I think what's going on is participants consider the description of Linda relevant, and then they are trying to predict a causal relationship between the facts that are given in the description and how Linda will turn out as a person. And you're supposed to ignore all of that. The description is completely irrelevant. Right? So when people are reasoning, they're still using their learning machinery, their memory machinery, and their problem-solving machinery, not just the formal system of probability. They're using their adaptive intelligence. They're using a lot of the same mechanisms they're using to do their day-to-day problem-solving. They're not just pursuing truth, but they're making sense of a situation. They're sizing it up, chunking, and finding relevant patterns, and then using that to try and anticipate the world. Yet, here's the thing. Notice when I showed you, when I showed you this, when I showed you the principle, right, the formal principle, you immediately acquiesced in it. Nobody said, no, 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 of course not. You said, yeah, yeah, I get it. The conjunction is always less probable than either of the conjuncts. So notice what's happening here. People acknowledge the formal principle. They say, yes, that is right. That's the rule I should follow. They acknowledge that it should govern their reasoning, and then they regularly and reliably violate it. And they do that because of their intelligence. So this immediately brings up a question we will address. What is the relationship between intelligence and rationality? Let's consider another reasoning problem. Now, one very important principle of reasoning that is essential to science is the use of evidence and inference to alter belief course. So belief A is based on evidence E, and then I discover that E is false. What should I do about A? Well, I should remove my belief in A. That's not the same thing as asserting not A. I should just remove my belief in A. Right? Now, how do you test this experimentally? Because, you know, people's beliefs are based on all kinds of contingent facts in their life. 
what you do is you try and create a belief that is unique to the experimental situation, right? A belief that you create in the experimental situation and then undermine the evidence, which was the sole evidence that caused that belief in the first place. So considering the, considering the, the following experimental setup, it's based on a couple of actual experiments. You have participants in the experiments. You randomly divide them into three groups. Each group is given a bunch of notes to read, and the task is to determine which ones are real suicide notes or fraudulent notes. Now, that's a pretty weird task. Most of you probably don't have any experience in that, so you shouldn't have any beliefs of your abilities in that right now because you don't know if you're good or bad at it. Right? Now, what you should know, a bit of dramatic irony here, is none of the notes are real, and participants are given feedback on their performance solely on the basis of which group to which they are randomly assigned. So group one is the control group, it's average feedback. You always know you're in a control group in the experiment because it's very boring. Right? Group two, you're given mostly positive feedback. It's like, yeah, that was right. That's another one you got right. Well done. Another one. Group three, you're given mostly negative feedback. No, that's wrong. You got it wrong. No, you got it wrong again. You got it wrong again. Okay? So now, Participants have formed a belief about their skill at, uh, at distinguishing real suicide notes from fake ones. In the next phase of the experiment, what you do is you completely debunk it. You show participants that the notes are fake, that the feedback was based solely on their random assignments. Completely debunk it. Okay? Then you give participants an intervening distractor task, find Waldo or something. Right? And then you ask participants later, how do you think you'd really do if we put you in a situation of identifying, trying to identify real suicide notes or analogous tasks? Now, what should they, what should they all say? I don't know, because I have no evidence. That's not what they do. People from group two state they will do quite well. People from group three state they will do quite poorly. Do you see what's happening here? This is called belief perseverance. People will maintain their belief even if the evidence that caused it has been completely undermined. Okay? Now, the thing, that what's interesting about this, and what you really have to struggle to do, uh, and, and this is part, I guess, part of what we get into, we get into wisdom, is believe that you would do the same in these experiments. Because you know who all these experiments are run on? Well like placed highly intelligent students at university, often in psychology departments. Okay. Okay, let's now consider what is called motivated reasoning or a failure of critical detachment. How is this determined? You first get participants' attitudes towards a particular, usually controversial proposition such as abortion is right. <coughs> right? Find people who highly agree with it, for example. I, this is not about abortion. This is not the point I'm making. I'm not making a statement or claim about this right now. Okay? That's not what's going on. Okay. Find people who highly agree with it, for example. Now, put them into two situations. You give them an invalid argument that leads to this conclusion that they favor, or you give them a valid argument that leads to the opposite conclusion. Do you understand? Then, you ask them to evaluate the quality of the argument. How good is the argument? How good is this argument? Now, people will say that the invalid argument is a good one and the, and the valid one is a bad one. They will not actually pay attention to the quality of the argument. There's a specific example of this, just so you believe me. Shurik and Schneiderman, 2004, ran a study where they measured people's attitude towards the death penalty. This, of course, is another controversial thing. Then gave them two versions of a supposed newspaper article. In both versions, the article claimed that recent neuroscientific research showed that the brain activity, specifically the frontal lobes, show a brain, show front, say frontal lobes, and people, oh, <laughs> and a violent offender was affected by a film they watched, either a film of someone undergoing execution or one of their prisoners being held in solitary confinement. Now, importantly, this is really important, the experimental data reporting the story was exactly the same. There's no change in the neuroscientific data the reporting of it. But the interpretations in the two versions were radically different. One interpretation was that the death penalty would deter crime, 
and the other was exactly the opposite in the interpretation. And what are the results? When you ask people to evaluate the neuroscientific quality, you can see what's driving their assessment, whether or not they agree with the death penalty. Okay? And that's when there's absolutely no difference in the data. Okay, now failure of critical detachment is, you know, I used to give this talk, you know, or versions of this early in the 90s, and it was sort of just a scientific thing, but now it's creepily relevant, right? Okay, failure of critical detachment is particularly worrying because critical detachment is the basis of rational persuasion. In order to change someone's mind, they have to value the argument and the evidence more than, than the conclusion it produces. Okay. Now notice this. They have to care. Notice the terms I'm invoking here. Caring. They have to care about the cognitive process more than the cognitive product. Right? And that's a crucial feature of rationality, according to Stanovich. People have to be have to care about the process and be willing to shift their attention onto it, and not focus on and fixate on just the conclusion, just the cognitive product. That shifting the focus of attention from the product to the process is often missing in people. So part, right, that's why you say involve here, I'm not making a complete definition, but rationality involves proper caring about the relevance or value of information and shifting attention accordingly. Okay, let's consider one more famous scientific experiment that points towards human irrationality. This is known as the waste and selection task. This has become a cottage industry under its help because we've been running these experiments and variations on them since 1966. Okay? So it's a basic experimental design to test individuals' capacity for conditional reasoning. And conditional reasoning is inference that relies on the logical relation of if-then, such as if it's a dog, then it's a mammal, it is a dog, therefore it's a mammal. Right? You can represent this with the abstract formula, if P then Q, P therefore Q, right? And you can put it in this kind of format, premises conclusion, okay? This is valid, right, because it's impossible for the premises to be true and the conclusion false. And this is known as modus ponens. It's one of the, like, it's a valid form of implication and inference, okay? If P then Q, Q therefore not P is not valid. This is the fallacy of affirming the consequence. So if it's raining, then the streets are wet. The streets are wet, therefore it's raining. Is that necessarily the case? No, of course not. They could have just washed the streets or something else. Okay? If P, then Q, not P, therefore not Q, not valid. This is the fallacy of denying the antecedent. If it's raining, then the streets are wet. It's not raining, then the streets are not wet. Is that necessarily true? No, of course not. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Okay? If P, then Q, not Q, therefore not P, this is valid. This is known as modus tollens. Okay? So notice, when you want to check for valid conditional reasoning, what you do is you check for modus ponens, that's confirmation, and you check for modus tollens, that's disconfirmation. Okay? So here's the setup of the weights and selection test. And they have monkeyed around with how to arrange the cards and whether or not you use front and back and left and right and ruled out all kinds of compounds you might immediately think of. You're just going to have to trust me on that because this has been around since the Beatles. It's a long time this, this week. They've been running this experiment. Okay, so if a card has a vowel on one side, it has an even number on the other. Which card should you flip to check to see if the rule is being followed? Okay, so what do people do? 90% of participants reliably choose the E card or the E and the 2 card. When, of course, what you should check, you should turn over this and this. Right? And if you thought of that, you're part of the 10%. Okay. Now this is known as a confirmation bias or fallacy, in which people only seek out confirmation and ignore looking for disconfirmation. Okay. Notice again, it's what you care about, what you direct your attention towards, what you consider relevant. This again would be very detrimental to science and to rational persuasion in general. Now, there's a lot more of these kinds of tests. There's tests about pseudodiagnosticity. There's tests about framing effects. Again, there's a lot of these tests. Standovich and his protégés and other labs have been running tons of these kinds of tasks for a very long time. 
the fact that the failure rates are so high has led some people to conclude that human beings are fundamentally irrational, right? Why? Because they universally agree without hesitation on the rules they should be using, and they almost universally and reliably violate those rules when actually reasoning. That sounds pretty irrational, right? Now, you have to step back and think about trying to draw that conclusion, because it's not e as easy to draw as you might think. One important response to the claim of human irrationality was given by Cohen in Behavioral and Brain Sciences in 1981. And he argued that the experiments were being misinterpreted if they were being used to conclude that human beings were fundamentally irrational. And his argument is kind of, I mean, it's a long paper, right? But his argument boils down to sort of a basic point. He argues that we have to be the source of the rules or norms of rationality. There can't be some supernatural source that's the basis of the rules that we're supposed to be following, because either we get the rules, I mean, this goes back to Plato and the Euthyphro, right? Either we get the rules and we follow them because we get them, or we don't get them and we're just obeying some arbitrary master. That's not rationality, right? And also, we can only be held responsible. I mean, I can't call this chair irrational because it can't be held responsible to those rational norms. I can only hold somebody responsible and, and claim that they're irrational if it makes sense to attribute these norms to them. Okay, so these are two long-standing arguments, you know, a lot of, there's Plato in there, there's Kant in there, right? It comes down to this idea, in some sense, we must be the source of the rules we are applying to ourselves. So why then all the errors in the experiment? If we are the source, if within us is or are all the rules we should be following, why don't we follow them? So Cohen uh, makes use of uh, the idea of systematicity and the Chomskyan distinction between competence and performance. Performance is what you have done. So performance is all the sentences you have uttered, right? Competence is what you're capable of doing. You are capable of uttering and understanding an indefinitely large number of sentences that you will never hear or utter. Right? Currently, there are no hyper-evolved, super-technologically advanced squirrels on Jupiter mining for undiscovered emeralds. <laughs> That's true, by the way. Uh, but I hope you had not thought of it before, because that would say something about your psychodynamic history. <laughs> okay. So let's compare two people with whom you are trying to talk. Okay. This drunk guy. So here's Mark. You know Mark. You come up to Mark and, hey, Mark, how's it going? You don't go, oh, my God, Mark can't speak English anymore. <laughs> because you know that this is just an ad hoc contingent situation, right, that is impairing his performance. He hasn't lost the competence for English. Now compare that to talking to the little girl. The little girl is making all kinds of errors, right? And you don't think, wow, is she drunk? <laughs> Maybe she's high. Maybe she's really pissed off at her dad. Now you know that she's two, right? And the thing about her is she's making systematic errors. The errors aren't based on contingent ad hoc circumstances. In fact, that's what Piaget used. He used the systematicity <coughs> in children's cognitive performance to actually work out the idea that there was development at, their comp at the level of their competence, cognitive schemes and such. Okay. So, as I said, the two-year-old, right, is making errors that are very systematic. So what does, what does Cohen do? Cohen's argument is that our reasoning competence must be the source of our rules or norms. It has to be in us. There's no other place for it to come from. So, therefore, the errors we're making in these experiments, all these errors I've been showing you, are therefore just performance errors. They're like being drunk. They don't mean that you lack rationality. It's just contingent things. You're tired, or you're, right, etc. So consider the parallel argument. We are the source of all the rules for judging grammaticality. I mean Chomsky and grammaticality, not the Queen's English or ridiculous stuff like that. But most of the time, people do not speak in a completely grammatical fashion. You, you're all editing. I just stumbled there. Did you see that? That's ungrammatical. But you don't go, oh, no. Right? Okay. Therefore, these errors are performance errors since human linguistic competence is the source of our grammatical norms. 
So by parallel argument, we are the source of the rules for reasoning, but most of the time people do not reason completely according to these rules, therefore these errors must be performance errors. Which then makes it like, oh, we are fundamentally rational. Aristotle's right, yay, nothing to worry about. However, Stanovich and West, in their article, 19 years later, in the same journal, Behavioral Brain <coughs> Sciences, have a devastating response to this argument by Cohen. If the errors people produce are performance errors, then the errors would be unsystematic, since it is systematicity that points to competence-based errors. That's how you tell whether or not you have competence-based errors or merely performance errors. You can check to see if there's systematicity amongst all these experimental results. What does that mean? We can look to see if the errors form a strong positive manifold. So this is like what Spearman did for intelligence. So I give you a bunch of different intelligence tests. And what Spearman found way back in 1926 right, is that how you do on any one test strongly predicts on how you will do on all the rest. They form a strong positive manifold. They all strongly mutually predict each other. Does that make sense? Same thing with Piaget, remember? He found that the errors that kids are making when they're two all strongly predict each other. And what this two-year-old is doing and what that two-year-old are doing strongly predict each other. Strong positive manifold, strong systematicity. So if Cohen is right and the errors in the experiment are performance errors, there should not be systematicity between the errors. But what we find is exactly the opposite. We find a strong positive manifold for the errors in all the reasoning experiments. How you do on any one of those reasoning tasks is strongly predictive of how you will do on all the rest. There's strong systematicity there. Therefore, these are not performance errors. There's something wrong with our competence. Now, that means we face a dilemma. And this dilemma is important, right? There's some sense in which Cohen's argument just has to be right. Right? Because we have to be, we are the only source for our rational norms, right? the autonomy of reason. But the errors we make are not performance errors. How do we get out of this dilemma? How can these both be the case? Well, one way to do this, I think it's the best way, is to challenge some of Cohen's assumptions. Notice that Cohen is assuming that we have a single competence and that it's stacked. If there's more than one competence at work, different systems that work according to different norms, right? we will still be the source of all the norms, but you know what can happen? Those different competencies can conflict with each other. And that conflict can be a systematic source of error. It's also possible our competence, like the two-year-old girl's linguistic competence, is developmental that our competence still needs further development. It's not fully developed. There's more we have to do. There's more skills we have to train. And such that although we are the source of our norms, our competence is not fully developed, and so those norms are not fully operational. We'll see Stanovich making use of exactly the strategy of undermining Cohen's assumptions of a single, single static competence. Why am I doing all this? Because I'm building a case for getting you to understand what must be the case, or what it, sort of like, sorry, that's too grandiose, what is most likely the case if we're going to get a good discussion about what rationality is and how distinct it is from intelligence, even general intelligence. Okay, so we are irrational at the level of our competence, which leads to the explanation we have multiple competencies that can interfere in conflict with each other and that are in need of further development. Now, this is an old argument, right? This goes back to Plato, that one of the reasons we fall into self-deception is because of such internal conflict. It's the work of our adaptive intelligence that makes us behave irrationally. That's what I keep showing you. In each one of these experiments, we're using the very machinery that makes us so intelligent that's actually causing us to be undermined as we pursue the rationality tasks. We see that there are important connections between having multiple competencies and adaptive intelligence. I'm going I'm to show you that more. Part of the way you are adaptively intelligent is by having multiple competencies because you do not face a single type of problem in your life. 
and you're a general problem solver. That's what it is to be intelligent. You can solve multiple problems in multiple domains, and they often don't have anything to do with each other. How many of you know how to swim? Raise your hands. How many of you think it will help you to understand my talk? <laughs> okay, that's my point. But it just did help. <laughs> <laughs> Not the skill, the analysis based on the skill. Okay, but before we pursue that, notice where we're, we're, we're in a perfect place here. When the perfect place to ask about the relation between general intelligence and rationality, and that's when we're going to start to get, get right? That's going to be relevant in the discussion of artificial intelligence. We can empirically test if rationality equals intelligence. How can we do that? Okay, we have, we have measures of general intelligence. From Spearman on, 26 on. 1926 on. This is the be single best right, construct in psychology. If I had to get one piece of information about you to try and predict the rest of your life, I want to know your general intelligence. Because it will predict how you'll do in school, how you'll do in work, how long you're going to live, your health, how many, how many times you're going to get divorced. And you don't like that. Too bad. It, that's, that's just a robust finding. Okay, so that's well established. But remember, remember, performance on the reasoning experiments also forms a strong positive <coughs> manifold. Okay, let's call this R. So we have measures of general intelligence. That's a strong positive manifold coming out of all the intelligence tests. We have measures of R, the strong positive manifold coming out of all the reasoning tests. Now what we can do, is this measure equal this measure? Do they vary with each other? How tightly is the variance between them? How much do they co-vary? There you go. Correlation is about 0.3. Stop and think about that. This is clear empirical evidence for this claim. Intelligence is necessary, but not sufficient for rationality. That means there is no necessary relation between making a system intelligent, even very highly intelligent, like the psychology students in the reasoning tasks, and making that system rational. In fact, it's very likely that we will produce highly intelligent irrationality. And that's a morally dangerous outcome. Right. Now, a prescription we should draw right now is that we need to give more emphasis to the artificial rationality project. There are people who are trying to do this. Unfortunately, a lot of that is about trying to get out of artificial reasoning going. That's good, but as I've been I'm already showing you, right, reasoning is largely the product of rationality. Rationality is a lot more about what what you find relevant, how you're paying attention, how you shift your attention around, etc. But anyways, we need to give more emphasis to the artificial rationality project, and we need to have the artificial general intelligence <coughs> and the artificial rationality projects more tightly integrated. But let's, more look, let's look more directly at three strategies that are emerging as we move to create artificial general intelligence. There are more than these strategies. This is not a, an exhaustive list. These are just three that I think are pertinent to the argument I'm making. I actually had four, and then, but when I practiced, I was running over an hour, so I took out one. So my choice of three is completely just driven by practical reasons. Okay? So you, have, you need an enhanced capacity for the selection of information. You need, there's increasing use of self-organization and the development and functioning of the machine. Increasing use of multi-machines in our AIs. These are machines with components that operate according to different strategies or principles and are relatively autonomous from each other. So these are three strategies that are increasingly being used and I, will, I predict strongly they will be used more and more as we try and make artificial general intelligence. Now, a couple of things about this. These strategies are only analytically distinct. They are often used in co various combinations because they can often afford each other. They can often mutually afford each other. Also, I'm deliberately, I'm deliberately keeping this discussion at an abstract level, because I'm not committing this argument to specific architectures like deep learning or Bayesian nets, but trying to find more general patterns, since that's all that I need for my argument in the first place. 
And second, it's much more likely that these general strategies will come to fruition than any one particular architectural strategy will triumph. That's so I'm deliberately doing this. Now, why is enhanced selection important? Oh, well, this is part of the, the obsession at the core of a lot of my career, right? Okay. As we move towards artificial intelligence, the amount of information or mobile, that's from Rodney a mobile robot, right? We'll have to process will become overwhelmingly vast. It is for you. The amount of information that you could direct your cognition to in this room is astronomically large. You're ignoring most of it right now. You could, for example, devote a lot more attention right now to how your left big toe is doing. If there's any possible correlation between how your left big toe is doing and the use of consonants in my speech. I bet you there's a correlation. Okay, now those are absurd. But how do you know? Okay, there's also, once you've selected information, there's the, 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 the set of responses you can generate is overwhelmingly vast. All the different possible combinate, like all the different things I could do right now, possible combinations of actions I could perform, form this huge field of possible actions that I have to somehow select from. And once I've selected, my, so I've selected the information somehow, and then I've selected what I'm going to do somehow, then I have a following, I do something and it produces a result. Now here's the thing. The world does not ever just produce the intended effect of my behavior. It also produces all kinds of unintended side effects. People every year do this. They go into a place where there is dispersed flammable gas and they light a match because the intended effect is make light. What's the unintended side effect? Make heat. Boom. The thing is, the number of unintended side effects for any action you perform is astronomically vast. One of the unintended side effects of my moving to look at the screen is my relative orientation towards Mars has been altered. Is that relevant? It might be. So this is the traditional AI problem of a combinatorially explosive space of information that needs to be searched. It has always been there, but as we move from AI and try and create artificial general intelligence, that problem is going to become more and more central. A lot of my work is trying to work out how cognitive agents zero in on such relevant information, given that even, that even the most powerful computers are overwhelmed by such combinatorial explosion. And they have to do this while ignoring all the irrelevant. This is what you cannot do. You cannot check all the pieces of information. Oh, that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. Because that's the rest of your life, trying to do that next task. Somehow, and this sounds like a Zen Cohen, you ignore most of the information and zero in on the relevant information, and sometimes you change it when you need to. That turns out to be like, what? <laughs> wow. In a related vein, to show you how relevant this is to psychological discussions about intelligence, Stanovich has argued that when we're measuring general intelligence, what we're actually measuring is this ability to deal with such, such computational limitations. When I'm measuring your intelligence, what I'm basically measuring, and I've got another publication arguing this in more detail if you want to look at it, right? What we're measuring is how well an agent zeroes in on relevant information and ignores irrelevant Now remember how in the reasoning task, issues about the relevance of information and what information you should care about were playing a powerful role. Remember that, right? You considered the description of Linda relevant and that biased your probabilistic reasoning. In another instance, you needed to find the process of reasoning as relevant or as valuable as the product to overcome the difficulties of motivated reasoning. So the inter this issue of relevance is, show is showing up in the interaction between your intelligence and your rationality. Many of such strategies of enhanced selection means having the system prioritize some information while ignoring other information. You do this in heuristic search. 
some people are now taking up the project of trying to create artificial attention, some of my students in fact, within AI. What you should know is there's no general, there's no generally successful strategy for determining what is relevant because it's very contextually sensitive. This is, there's a formal proof for this called the no free lunch theorem. That, these are academics trying to be funny. No free lunch. Okay, what this means is that all intelligent processing relies on biasing what information is being processed. All intelligent processing requires you making some judgment about what information is going to be treated as relevant and what information is going to be treated as irrelevant. Now, what this means is the following. Making something more generally intelligent means making it more capable of such biasing in its processing. We sow such bias in our intelligence. Okay, so for example, trying to calculate the actual probability, remember Linda? The actual probability of real world events is combinatorially explosive. If you were trying to, like, if you try, what's the probability of this event occurring? You'd have to, oh my god, you'd have to map out all these variables. Whoa, it's combinatorially explosive. It's just, whoa, it's uh, computationally intractable. So we don't do that. If we tried to do that, You'd, you'd, you'd start your first probability judgment and that'd be the rest of your life. That's cognitive suicide. So what we do is we rely on two heuristics or biases, the representativeness heuristic, the availability heuristic. Representativeness means this. If some event is very prototypical and or salient to us, really stands out for us, grabs our attention, makes us care, then the event, we judge it the event to be very probable. Availability, if similar events are easy to remember and or imagine happening. If we can easily remember, oh yeah, that event is similar to this one, or we can easily imagine it happening, then we judge that the event is highly probable. That's what you're using all the time. And here's the thing, you're really good at getting around in the world intelligently. But it's still problematic. You take your loved one to the airport, and kick this up so you can remember, and this is what you do. You worry about this. So you say all these euphemisms to them, like, have a safe trip, which means don't die. <laughs> text me when you're there, because the plane crack crash and you are obligated to text me. You're just saying, don't die, don't die, don't die. I love you, don't die, don't die, don't die. I love you, I love you, don't die. Okay? Now, why are we doing that? Right? Because these events are really representative to us. When it happens, they are made super salient. They are on the news, and they are called tragedies. Very, very, right, representative. And then it's easy for us to imagine a plane falling, because we have these homo erectus brains, all this metal in the air, oh, of course it can fall. So we judge this event as what? Highly probable. After our friends leave, we go and get in our car without a second thought, forgetting that the car is North America's death machine. <coughs> See, the self-deception can ultimately even be self-destructive. Now notice, I can't stop using these biasing strategies because that will undermine intelligent behavior. I'll just face overwhelm, I'll face oceans of emotion, oceans of information, right? Combinatorial explosion. I can't stop using these biasing strategies because that will undermine my intelligent behavior. That's cognitive suicide. But I cannot simply let them run unchallenged because they can lead to self-deception. So part of what is central to rationality is knowing, and please follow this carefully, where and when, to what degree, and how to override my adaptive intelligence. <clears throat> I somehow have to use my intelligence to learn all of this and then apply it in a recursive manner to my own intelligent behavior. So what I've been showing you already is, I've been showing you more and more about what rationality is and how it's distinct from intelligence, but enhancing selection processes makes us more intelligent, but also more prone to self-deception and in need of the higher order skill, because it's recursive, of rationality. Another overall strategy, as I mentioned, is to have the machine make use of self-organizing processing, especially self-optimization strategies. 
This is because, as I mentioned, to be an artificial general intelligence, you have to be a general problem solver. What that means is you're often dealing with multiple goals that are in trade-off relationships. Right? So as you satisfy one goal, you will lose on satisfying the other goal. They trade off from each other. So you cannot maximize one goal because you will lose on the other goal that you need to achieve. So what you have to do is optimize between them. For example, being able to generalize your predictions would make you more intelligent. But you don't want to do that at the cost of being able to make important discriminations between individuals. Right, so for example, this prediction generalizes more. There's stuff near me. That generalizes very, very well. It doesn't generalize as well as this. There are people near me. But I care more about the second one than the first. Got to get the right balance. Sometimes it's relevant to treat things as the same in generalization, sometimes as different discrimination. And you need to do this at multiple levels at the same time. I'll show you this. You're doing it, you're doing it right now as you're reading this. How do I know? This is from David Romelhart, 1988. What's this say? Say it. What does it say? The cat. The cat. What are you doing here? These are perceptually the same, but you're treating them as different letters. An H and an A. How do you do that? I mean, it seems like a paradox, right? In order to read the word, I must read the letters. But in order to disambiguate the letters, I must read the word. Therefore, it's impossible to read. <laughs> well, here's the answer. You have a massively self-organizing process that is simultaneously operating bottom-up from the letters and top-down from the words. You're doing it right now. You're doing it right now. I'm going to show you how that self-organization also makes you more self-deception. But I, I want to do this other first, because the two go together very well. Multiple machines. This is that work in machines such as the neural Turing machine, AlphaGo, adversarial processing, etc., etc. More and more, we are generating multiple machines as we try and make machines that have AGI. Your brain has adopted this strategy a long time ago. You have hemispheric processing. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the hemispheres. This is especially the case in the popular media. The right and the left hemispheres are pre uh, presented in the following. Here's your right hemisphere. It's sort of this wonderful artist struggling to be free. <laughs> right? And then here's your left hemisphere. <laughs> right? And that's not a good way of understanding. Right? That's not a good way of understanding. The reality is more complicated, nuanced, and interesting. So the left hemisphere tends, right? And you always have to speak probabilistically about localization, right? The left hemisphere deals with, right, tends to deal with familiar problems that are very clearly defined for you. In these situations, you need a very narrow focus to pick up on differences of detail, very fine control, very step-by-step -step action, and clarity is very important, very intolerant of ambiguity. So this kind of task. And it's no coincidence, of course, that, you know, these fine, that the area of the brain for doing these very fine controlled hand movements was exacted for language processing, which, of course, is highly associated with the left hemisphere, etc. Okay? The right hemisphere deals with unfamiliar problems that are not so clearly defined. Now, here, in these situations, you need a very wide focus. You're not going down to details. You're going up to the gestalt. You need more gross motor behavior because you need to act all at once. And you need to be quite tolerant of ambiguity, like this. Uh. When a predator sweeps in, well, what kind of predator is it? Is it blue? Is ah, you're dead. <laughs> okay. Your right hemisphere is not really a struggling artist. Your right hemisphere is actually scanning for unexpected, unfamiliar problems and threats. That's why depression is associated with hyperactivity in your right hemisphere. Okay, now what I want to show you is, see, you see multiple machines. The two hemispheres are operating fundamentally different in things that are central to rationality, what you care about, how you pay attention, how you organize your behavior. Notice the two hemispheres that work in this problem. I, I know some of you are wincing because if you've spent more than 35 seconds around me, you've seen this problem. <laughs> and they're, they're going to put it on my tombstone. My okay, so this is the nine dot problem. You have to connect all nine dots with four straight lines. 
People think this is a very easy problem when they initially try it. All nine dots with four straight lines, what's the problem? Oh, this is the center. Oh, 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 oh. This is actually a very hard problem. The solution rate, the spontaneous solution rate for this problem is not statistically different from zero. But what's so hard about it? There's a solution. When you do that, people get mad at you. They say, you cheated. You went outside the box. First thing to note, Weisberg and Alba, 1981, telling people, think outside the box, that's where it comes from, from this experiment, <laughs> does not help people to solve this problem. Saying to people, think outside the box, you need to go outside the square, does not help them to solve this problem. Because this is not just a matter of inferentially changing what they believe. What's going on here? You have to break up the square that you've imposed, break the association between four straight lines and a square. You have to overcome the gestalt principle of seeing the dots as a square. You have to make a non-dot turn. You're not allowed to do that and connect the dots. All of this is a highly complex self-organizing system of intentional and self-regulation skills. We know that this is afforded by a sudden shift of an activity from the left hemisphere to the right hemisphere. Because when you get the problem, you say, I know what this problem is. You categorize it as a familiar problem. Connect the dots, here's a square. Left hemisphere starts working, can't solve it. And you have to break out of that, and the right hemisphere goes, ah! And then looks for a totally different way, opens up your attention, considers things, is willing to tolerate more ambiguity in its processing, and gets you a different problem formulation. And then activity shifts back to the left hemisphere. You want to read up more about that? Here's the book. I hate these pretentious covers, but there you go. <laughs> it's Kuni Austin Beeman. This is 2016. Notice how all the principles, notice how you will you were self-deceived in the nine-dot problem. I didn't deceive you. Nine dots, four straight lines. But you had sophisticated selection. Your brain was making all these automatic judgments about what was relevant. The square is relevant. The space outside the is irrelevant. It's doing this in a it's processing in a highly self-organized fashion. It's shifting attention between the two hemispheres, making use of multiple machines. All of that came together. So now, notice the connection between multiple competencies and general intelligence. You have multiple competencies that improves your general intelligence because it improves your capacity for self-correction by trading off between strategies. Different strategies can trade between them and that improves my capacity for being intelligent by improving my capacity for self-correction. Notice how the competence that is central to your insight problem solving is not an inferential competence. Telling you the fact that you need to go outside the square does not help you because this is largely your attentional competence, using your attention to what you find salient and relevant, how you're grouping things together perceptually, etc. Now, let's see how principles of, self, of, of enhanced selection, self-organization, and multiple machines with potentially conflicting competencies at work in your adaptive intelligence in ways that make you self-deceptively foolish. Okay, so this is based on the work of Ainsley. This is known as temporal discounting or hyperbolic discounting. He found this across multiple species, including ours, which means it is a convergent thing in evolution. Evolution, natural selection keeps zeroing in on this machine, which means it's highly adaptive. How does it work? So this is how salient, like how relevant, how important you consider a stimulus, and this is the orientation in time. This is the present, this is the future. When a stimulus is very present, it's very salient, and very quickly, as it becomes something in the future, you discount it. It's salience, it's the way it grabs your attention, arouses you, motivates action, drops off like this. This is why you procrastinate. Essay do. Come out to the party. Need to lose weight. Chocolate cake on the counter. Here it is. 
chocolate cake, health. <laughs> okay? Notice all the machinery at work here. This is really adaptive. Why? Why is it adaptive? So, let's say you're at the current event. The probability of the current event is one because it just happened. I, I'm, not, I'm not claiming some platonic perfection and the universe unfolds symmetrically. I'm just using this for pedagogical purposes. Let's say from this event, two other events are possible. Each has a probability of 50% occurring. And then from that, two. It's, you see what's happening? The probability of each event is going down exponentially. Yes? As you move into the future. So here's why this is adaptive. Here's why this is adaptive. Your, system, your brain makes you intelligent by having you pay less attention to something if it's less probable of happening. Because that actually makes sense. Imagine if you didn't do this. Imagine if you found all the possibilities salient to you. So you go to get out of bed and you think, hey, I might trip on my right ankle. I might twist it. And then I'll be walking slow. And I'll be in pain. Maybe that'll slow me down in getting to class. Maybe that will then cause me to start to be disrupted in my performance. I'll start to fail. That will cause anxiety. That will cause further failure. I won't get my degree. I'll end up in Buffalo married to a lamp. <laughs> a lamp? Yeah. <laughs> so, that's possible. The last part is impossible. But everything before it is possible. But you don't go to the one. In fact, it might be the case, in fact, this is something I want to explore, that people with generalized anxiety disorder are not doing as much hyperbolic discounting as they need to be doing. But here's the problem. It's adaptive. You need it. You need this, or you'd be overwhelmed. But here's the problem. I don't smoke, but let's say I did. I smoke a cigarette, and it leads to a chain of events where I get cancer in my left lung, and I die in Hamilton. This is cancer in my right lung dying in Hamilton. This is cancer in my left lung dying in Toronto, right lung in Toronto. These are different events. Here's the thing. Each one of these premature deaths, each one of these events has a low probability of occurring. But I'm kind of not that fussy. What I mean by that is I want to avoid death. It's not like, oh, well, as long as I don't die in Hamilton. That's kind of true, but nevertheless, <laughs> right? I want to avoid, see, I don't want to avoid a particular event. I want to avoid the abstract property that they share in common. So by adaptively blinding us to low probability events, it also maladaptively blinds us to abstract properties that they share, that are highly probable as a shared property. So you can't end temporal discounting or you commit cognitive suicide. You can't shut it off. You need a separate process, notice that separate process, that can sometimes, not always, override it. And again, where and when and to what degree. It does that through abstract symbolization. I have an abstract symbol, abstracting from all of these events the common property of premature death. And then, symbolic identification. I, this John now, has to identify with that John in the future. Simply knowing the relation is insufficient. This has been shown experimentally. I have to care about, I have to identify with that future self, or I will not change my current future behavior. Even if I know this result out here. That's why people don't save, for example. They don't save for their future because they don't like it to look at their future self. Because their future self is old and diseased. And I don't care about that guy. Ooh. If you take those same, so you explain to people, put away savings and you give them all the grounds. These are academics, by the way. This is what this has done. Do they save? Nope. No retirement savings. Then you go in and say, forget about that. Here's this future guy. This is what he's going to look like. He needs your care. You try and arouse compassion for the future self, and then they start saving. Notice what you're doing. You have to alter your temporal perspective. You have to alter your framing of information. You have to engage in self-identification in, in order to overcome the self-deception at work within the normally adaptive hyperbolic discounting. Your intelligence is doing hyperbolic discounting. That falls into self-deception. And then you have to use all of these processes in order, order to override it. 
because of the nature of it. You can't shut it off. So Bravik and Ferraro argue that heuristic biases, self-organized processing, and the effect of emotion and identity on attention can reinforce each other in a vicious fashion, which we call parasitic processing. It's on the analogy of a biological parasite. It's a system that takes root in your cognition and sucks life from you. So consider the following example. There's an event that's interpreted as bad or wrong. So your brain wants to know when are there going to be other bad events like that, which is a good thing to search. Okay, so you have this thing called encoding specificity. That means you tend to remain, you tend to remember things that you acquired in the same state. So when you're sad, it's very difficult for you to remember when you're happy. It's very easy for you to remember when you're sad, right? And that is interacting with the representative heuristic because it's making these this, these bad events more salient to you. And that's also making them easier to imagine. The availability heuristic is plugging into this. And then both of these are interacting with the confirmation bias. I only look for informa information that confirms that things are shitty. I don't look for disconfirmation. <coughs> so I'm starting to presume pretty rapidly, oh, such bad events are going to happen. That causes anxiety, right? Now, what we know about anxiety is it narrows your frame, more local specific processing. That reduces your cognitive flexibility right away. Your sense of being able to solve problems goes down, because as cognitive flexibility goes down, your capacity for insight, for that reframing, goes down. So low self-assessment, sense of ineffectuality. The world is now seeming less clear, more alien, increasingly threatening. You're getting frustration and futility because you're not solving your problems. Paranoia, and the whole thing is feeding back on itself. Self-organization makes you adaptively intelligent. Heuristic processing makes you adaptively intelligent. Multiple competencies makes you adaptively intelligent. Researchers from MSU and MIT produced a similar and more complex model of depression in 2015. Whoa. Mark Lewis, a friend and colleague of mine, was, I, I gave a talk at the Society for Psychology and uh, Philosophy and Psychology, I should say, this year, and he has a forthcoming art, article for the New England Journal of Medicine. And he's, proposed, he's proposed something very analogous. Him and I are talking about my idea of parasitic processing and his idea of addiction, which he calls reciprocal narrowing. The following two slide sequences are from Mark's talk, which he kindly gave to me. So you have some trigger cue. Right, craving. You can either imagine satisfying it, and right, and that reinforces the cue. That gets some intensification. You can you can actually do it. That also does it, and then relief, which then leads to learning. But then there's the loss, and then you start doing more and more and more, right? And it builds up. So already you've got this self-organizing, complex process going on, and that actually develops. It's part of your development. There's overwhelming evidence that the current model of addiction as an overwhelming compulsion that you can't get rid of is false. Okay? Because, and, and why? Well, many examples, lots of evidence, just one quick thing just to point you to the data. You have lots of people using opioids in Vietnam, the heroin, and then they return to North America and they just spontaneously stop use. Why? Most people stop using drugs in their late 30s. Why? Notice that in Vietnam, I'm a soldier in Vietnam, and then when I go to the United States, I'm a different person in a different place. The agent and the arena, the, the cognitive agent and the world that makes sense to them are both changed. And so this cycle gets broken. Mark talks about that as reciprocal narrowing. So you have a cognizing and feeling body, right? And then you have a present. He put that in on his own, not because of me. <laughs> Relevant, engageable world, and there's, there's interaction between them. And then what that does is it starts, right? What happens is they're, they're, the sense of what the options are available gets constrained, and then that constrains your self-interpretation, your sense of agency. And then that, in turn, starts to constrain what, how the arena of the world is laid out for you, and so on and so forth. And that's what he means by reciprocal narrowing. <coughs> So what I've been showing you is that the three strategies coming to the fore in artificial general intelligence, enhanced selection, self-organization, multiple machines, they're central to your adaptive intelligence. 
However, those same strategies make you highly, highly vulnerable to self-deception. Rationality involves the development of multiple skills of attention, framing, self-identification, and coordination of multiple machines in order to overcome self-deception. Okay, according to Stanovich, what accounts for most of the missing variants in performance on reasoning tasks is not general intelligence, as we've already seen, but the cognitive style of active open-mindedness. You have to acquire a, a cognitive style. You have to train yourself to look for the interfering biasing effects of your adaptive intelligence on your inferential processing. And that, right, has to be oriented towards getting you true <coughs> facts. But, and Stanovich admits this, although he doesn't talk about it very much, there are instances where such inferential processing is detrimental to important aspects of your cognitive agency. There are in, so, for example, if I trigger your inferential processing, that undermines your insight problem-solving capacity. Those are trade-off relationships. Right? It can interfere with your ability to change perspective or symbolic identification. That's what goes on in therapy. People come in often knowing the facts. That's not the issue. They don't know how to break out. They don't know, right, how to shut off that inferential rumination in order to get the insight, in order to alter their identification machinery. So you need a completely different cognitive style. One that helps you shut off the inferential processing and train your skills of adaptation and enhance your capacity for insight. And we have increasing evidence that that's what the cognitive style of mindfulness does. The more people have training in mindfulness, the more cognitive flexibility they have, the better they are at insight problem solving. In addition, you need a, another cognitive style, the skill which comes from your development of internalizing other people's perspectives. So you know how to relate to other perspectives, take other perspectives. So Leo and I, in that same 2013 publication, sort of proposed this. I'm not happy with this anymore. Your work is like your children. You're supposed to love it forever, but still, you know? Right? So you have one, you have knowing facts about X this is your propositional knowledge. This is your rationality of inferential computation, abduction, and right, deduction, right? And that's improved by active open-mindedness. You, you, you know how to interact with something. That's your procedural knowledge. This is for your insight, foresight, mindset. This is improved by mindfulness. You also know what it's like to have a perspective, what it's like to be X, to be a person in this room right here, right now, integrating these two together. Notice I have different competencies, different cognitive styles for those different competencies. I need to prevent this from sometimes interfering with this, and this from interfering with this, and I need this to coordinate those, that, that together. So I have a cognitive style in enhancing the rationality of each and of all. So you get this rationally self-transcending rationality that I think is at the core of what it is to be wise. Following the work of Ardell and giving the argument you've just seen, wisdom is something that has to be known from the inside. Having a theory of wisdom is insufficient for generating wisdom. <coughs> wisdom involves procedural, perspectival, and existential competence. It involves what L.A. Paul, it often involves what L.A. Paul called transformative experience, going through radical changes in your, what kind of experiences you're having, what kind of person you are, what kind of preferences you have. And it also involves a deep kind of self-knowledge and self-understanding. And while we have natural comparative exemplars of general intelligence for modeling purposes of artificial general intelligence, when I'm doing AGI, I have something to compare it against for ecological validity. You guys. I don't have such a natural supply for rationality for reasons that I've explained to you quite carefully. And you know what I don't have very much of at all? Exemplars of wisdom. And having a theory of wisdom is no substitute for having the exemplar, because wisdom has to be known from the inside through somebody who's gone through transformational development. 
Here's what I'm arguing. Artificial general intelligence without artificial wisdom is morally dangerous to both the machines, because we're going to make machines that are highly intelligently self-deceptive, and also morally dangerous to us. Because you know what we don't need more of? Intelligently irrational cognitive agents. Not more just in the sense of more of them, but faster than us. Therefore, there is a moral imperative upon us, because we are all we got, to cultivate wisdom so that we know how and we can exemplify to these machines wisdom. Thank you very much. <laughs>